Good afternoon. Good to see you all. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Community Church. Uh, we're now one of the uh, fall festival exhibits for the Methodist Church. I saw a bunch of people like checking us out. It's fine if you want to just see what we're doing over here. But in case you thought we were going to give you candy at the end of this, we're not. I'm sorry. Um, but what we, what we do have, uh, we give to you, which is uh, not a miracle, but the Word of God. And we got a lot to get to today. So if you have your Bible, let's get into Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're continuing this series that we've called East of Eden. We're preaching through Ecclesiastes. And kind of our bread and butter here at Zoe is just going through books of the Bible, right? We we open up a book and we walk through it passage by passage, verse by verse. Um, And we're in Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15. I've been in Ecclesiastes for a few weeks now. Uh, and again, we, we kind of have a lot to get through. Um, it's funny. Eric is always talking about how ironic it is, uh, that I'm always, you know, preaching about, you know, the brevity of life and how we don't have that much time and, and our lives are just a vapor. And then I get up here and then I preach the longest sermon you ever heard in your life. Uh, you only have this amount of life and this much is going to be me talking in your ear. Um, but hopefully it's not just me, but it's God's word. Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, and while you're turning there, let's just hit the ground running. I have a question for you. When did you, when did you learn to tell time? Like, when did you learn that ability or that skill? Maybe it was your parents, you know, they, they kind of sat you down with, with a clock or like a, a wristwatch and they, they showed you what the two hands meant or, or something like that. Maybe you learned it in school, in kindergarten or preschool. Uh, maybe you're younger and you never learned, right? You just have digital clocks. You have a phone. You don't worry about it really. When did you learn to tell time? And I read a story. I heard a story about this guy named Carl. And uh, he had just turned 80 years old, but about a year earlier, he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the thing about Alzheimer's is that, you know, you're kind of this guy who's been growing your whole life, right? You've been changing, you've been learning, you've been accumulating knowledge and wisdom. Uh, people look to you for answers. You have kids, you raise them, but then you hit this point. It's kind of like a roller coaster going up to the peak. And once you hit that peak, you start free falling. Right. All of a sudden, he's forgetting all these things that he used to know so easily. And now he has these young doctors fresh out of med school who would sit him down and talk to him like a child. They would say, hey, Carl, do you know who the president is? Or they would say, can you remember how to spell your name? They would even ask him things like, what is your name? And one of the things that they would always ask him to do, and I, I found out that this is what a lot of doctors ask Alzheimer's patients to do, is they would give them a piece of paper, just a blank piece of paper, and they would say, can you draw a clock for me that says such and such a time? Just draw me a clock. And at first, it was a little insulting to his intelligence. Carl was a smart guy. He was a physicist. He had a, a graduate degree. He was a teacher of mathematics. But his wife can remember the first time that he he just couldn't do it. He was sitting there and he had a a pencil in his hand and he had that blank piece of paper and he was looking at it and then he was trying to to draw the clock, the circle and the hands and he just could not figure out what he was supposed to do. The doctor said, Carl, can you draw me this clock? Every other time before he had been able to do it. But all he could say was, I I, I can't. I, I don't know how to do it. 
In fact, in his physicist brain, he was trying to put it into words. He was trying to explain. He was like, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the superposition of, of three types of information, right, doctor? Like, uh, there's the the hours and, and the minutes and the seconds, and it's really hard to, to for me to layer. He was trying to explain using these big words. He was still a, a smart guy, and yet for some reason, something was broken in his brain. He couldn't do something that he had been able to do since he was a kid. Carl couldn't tell time anymore. Or ever again. And do you realize how debilitating something like that can be? Because time is so important to our lives. It's so part and parcel of how we live that we take it for granted. We meet with people at certain times. We create daily routines and schedules based on time. We go to sleep at our bedtime. We set an alarm clock at a certain minute to wake up. The American economist Jeremy Rifkin calls it uh, calls us time-binding creatures. He says we, he says all of our perceptions of self and world are mediated by the way we imagine, explain, use, and implement time. Time is how we live, essentially. We speak of ourselves in terms of our age, a counted-up measurement of time. We talk about how time seems to fly by faster as we get older. We wish we had just a little bit more time to do certain things. I remember I used to say this all all the time, no pun intended. I used to say, I wish I could freeze time because I need more time to do this or I need more time to do that. And this is why I think a lot of us take out our phones and we record the most exciting and kind of important events of our lives. I know people like to clown on, you know, millennials for doing that kind of thing. Like, why are you missing the moment by recording things? But the reason why we do that is because we want to freeze that moment, that snapshot of time for the future. We want to preserve something that we know is fleeting. And then, uh, of course, some of us are younger. We want to speed up time. I remember as a kid, I, I couldn't wait till my birthday came or I couldn't wait till Christmas. Now I'm like, dude, I can't, I don't want any more birthdays. I want to stay in my mid thirties forever. Time can heal wounds. We know that time can also be cruel. And that's why I started by talking about Carl because people like Carl and some of you know this because of loved ones, because of grandmothers or parents. The time can be cruel and the ravages of time can really wear upon the human spirit. Most, if not all of us, can tell time, at least for now. But when was the last time you really thought about time? When was the last time you thought about the past critically? How much time is, has already passed you by? How much of the hourglass has already hit the bottom? How many of you have thought about how little or how much time you might have left? And on top of that, how many of us think about how we can best use the short amount of time that we all have? Time is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to talk about in chapter 3. And let me read uh, the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. But listen to what the preacher says. He says in, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, he says, For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, 
a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would teach us to number our days. God, I pray that the lessons of Ecclesiastes 3 would sink down deep into our hearts, that they would not just stay on the surface. And I pray that no matter how old we are, no matter how young we are, no matter how much more time that we have, God, that we would see time as you want us to see it. You would help us to live our lives the way that you want us to live them. And I pray, God, that through it all, you would show us Christ. God, we look to him. We pray that he would be glorified and magnified, even as we read Ecclesiastes 3. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes is known to be a difficult book. Okay, we've established that. We've been in it for a few weeks. Some call it a depressing book. Others of us uh, have known it as a dangerous book. But when you read Ecclesiastes, when you actually read it, you see that it's truly a beautiful book. In fact, the author Tom Wolfe called Ecclesiastes the, quote, highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. And today, we're looking at perhaps the most beautiful passage in the entire book. It's definitely the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes. Many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, love this passage. They enjoy the poetry, kind of the profound nature of the observations of the preacher in verses 1 through 8. In fact, uh, my friend's dad was asked to share a few words at a funeral of a relative by marriage. Okay, so he didn't know the person like super well, but they asked him to share. And, and little backstory, this funeral was a Buddhist funeral. Okay, so they asked him to share. He was a Christian pastor, a Christian minister. So he decided, even though it's a Buddhist funeral, they said I could share about whatever I want. So he opened up the Bible and he read Ecclesiastes 3. But the funny thing was, my friend said he was there and he said next to the next to his dad was the Buddhist monk or priest or whatever he was, and he was mouthing along the words to Ecclesiastes 3, even as his dad was reading those words, because he had committed them to memory. He knew them by heart. These words had struck a chord with this Buddhist guy as well, or maybe he was just a fan of the birds. So far, only a few people get that. uh, Anyway, so far the preacher, the one who has been speaking in Ecclesiastes, he has been hitting the same note in different keys, right? If you've been here, he's been saying vanity, vanity, vanity in all these different ways. In Hebrew, the word for vanity is the word hevel. It means breath or vapor. The preacher has looked around the world searching for anything to find meaning, anything that will bring lasting satisfaction, real joy in life. But thus far, he has come up empty. Everything that he has seen is vanity. Everywhere he looks, whatever he looks to, it's just hevel. It's fleeting. It's insubstantial. 
But he ended chapter two last week on a run of hope. If you remember this, he said that everything that I looked to in my knowledge and my wisdom, it led to vanity, hopelessness. There was no enlightenment. He said he looked to pleasure, right? He tried to just do things that felt good, but it left him empty the more that he went after those things. And then he even looked to his work, trying to be productive, trying to create some meaning for himself. Also that, that toil was vanity. But then at the end of chapter two, he said that even though all these things are vanity, even though all the things in the world cannot ultimately give us what we're looking for, they do point us to someone who resides above the world. The gifts of life, and that's what they are, they can't satisfy us, but they can point us to the giver. Now in chapter 3, the preacher changes gears a little bit from his own experience, that's what he was talking about before, his search for meaning, now to his observations about life. He's kind of showing his work. This is kind of how he got to his conclusions. And what he wants to do is he wants to show us how the world really is. He wants us to see through his eyes, to stop rushing about and and skimming over life, not really thinking about why we do the things that we do. And he wants us to think deeply about our choices, about our decisions, about the good and the bad, about every single moment of our lives. And this section starts with this poem about time, but what does it mean? Okay, let's dive in. Okay, what we have in this poem and in the verses that follow are three truths about time. Three truths about time. First, we're going to see that time is a tyrant. Okay, time time is a tyrant. We cannot escape its rule over us. Second, we're going to see that time is a teacher. Okay, so even though time is a tyrant, time does teach us something. It has a purpose, a lesson. And third, we're going to see that time is a temporary thing. Okay, it's temporary. And knowing that it's finite and that we're finite enables us to be joyful and truly wise people the joyful and truly wise people that Ecclesiastes is meant to make us. So time is a tyrant, a teacher, and temporary. First, time is a tyrant. A tyrant. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, he titled this passage in his commentary, The Tyranny of Time. The Tyranny of Time. And while that might surprise some of us, because this poem is beloved, right? People love it. They feel like it's beautiful. They want to read it at their funeral, We need to actually consider what he's saying, what the content of the poem is. Look at verse 1. He says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, before we dig into this, I know some of you can only hear this passage in the tune of turn, 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 right? And a few of you laughed. A lot of us uh, had no idea what I was talking about. So a little history lesson. There was this band called The Birds. They didn't write this song, but they covered it. And it's a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And it came out in like the 60s. And basically they ripped, or, or the person who wrote it, ripped the lyrics straight from Ecclesiastes 3. Okay, and just put some, you know, like hippie retro tunes to it. Uh, but fun fact, it, it actually reached number one on the Billboard chart. So Solomon, even though, you know, we know him as being kind of the, the wisest man of all time, and, and we know him as being the guy with a thousand wives, he actually was probably the earliest number one billboard recording artist of all time, too. Uh, I told James that he could lead the song for worship today. I mean, it doesn't get any more biblical than Turn, 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 but it was a little too weird. Um, we tried it. It didn't, it didn't work. It's not really... The Zoe way. Anyway, verse 1. Okay, put that song out of your mind. Thankfully, a lot of you don't know it. Verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter 
under heaven. First of all, notice the words everything and every. Okay, these tip us off as to how to read this poem. We're not supposed to exegete the details of each couplet. Okay, like uh, pontificating about, okay, what does it mean to, to refrain from embracing or to gather up stones? It's not a treatise on stones. It would be a masterclass in missing the point if all we did, did was talk about each of these couplets in detail. Uh, rather, what the preacher is doing is giving examples of everything that is done under heaven. There's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time for the positives and the negatives. Time for good and for bad. There are seasons for both. Now, okay, what does that mean? If you look in the Hebrew, the word for time is eight, okay, E-A-T or E-I-T. And the Hebrew word for season is zaman. Okay, now they're used in parallel here. And what they mean in this context, they're not talking about a certain specific chronological time, like three o'clock or, or March 21st. What they're talking about here uh, are an occasion, okay, a situation for something. There's an occasion where it's appropriate to weep, verse four. And there, then there's an occasion where it's appropriate to laugh. Life is not just one or the other. And that's the thing about this poem that we need to realize right off the bat. It's that it's a duality. Life has both. There's two sides to every coin. The general pattern is a negative thing and a positive thing or a positive thing and then a negative thing. But there's a polarity. So if you look at verse 2, it's birth and death. And then it's sowing and reaping, right? Where you plant the crops and then you pick them up. Verse 3, killing and healing. Breaking down and building up. Verse 4, weeping and laughing. Mourning and dancing. Verse 5, casting and gathering stones. Embracing and not embracing. Now, okay, real quick, I I said we don't want to major on the minors here, but there is some debate as to what this means, right? Casting stones, gathering stones. Some people think it's a a reference to war where you would put stones on on enemy people's, you know, crops or whatever so they couldn't plant anymore. Or, Or maybe it's a euphemism for intimacy or something like that. But I think really what it is, is there's a time to make a mess and there's a time to clean up. Okay, very simple. And then embracing and refraining from embracing. I always thought the time to refrain from embracing was a little funny. I don't know if you ever thought about that when you heard this before. You know, like your friend sees you and he's going in for the hug and you say, hold on. It's not hug seasons, bro, right? Like, don't hug me. But what this is about, there's a time to be close to somebody and a time where you're not close to them. I mean, everyone knows this. You live long enough, right? The people that used to be your best friends are now strangers and vice versa. Verse 6, seeking and losing, keeping and throwing away. Verse 7, tearing and sewing. Remember, it was customary in this culture to tear your clothes when you were in mourning or grieving. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to put yourself back together. Keeping silent and speaking. Sometimes it's appropriate to speak out. Sometimes you need to hold your tongue. Verse 8, loving and hating war and peace. You can see the polarity. You can see the duality. You can see that there's both a positive and a negative, two sides to a coin. And if you count how many examples the preacher gives, it's 28. Now, uh, I said this before, whenever you get into numerology in the Bible, you're going down kind of a dangerous path. You're you're not that far away from saying, I, I did the calculations and Jesus is coming back in three minutes, you know, like that kind of craziness. But the number seven is important in the Bible. You see it right away in the beginning of Genesis. God creates everything in what? In six days and then he rests. Right? The first week of all creation is seven days. And to the Hebrew mind, this was important. This was kind of a way for them to think about things in completion. 
right? If seven days is good enough for a full week for God, then seven is enough for us when we want to talk about anything comprehensively. So if you wanted to make a comprehensive list of different things, you would just list out seven things. So what we have here are seven examples and then seven more and then seven more and then seven more. It's the four seasons of life times seven. The preacher is being comprehensive and he's being exhaustive. He's saying basically that this is life. This is just how it is. And some people have a problem with this. You know, when you read this, not just as a nice poem for a funeral, but as Holy Scripture, you start to ask questions like, how can the Bible say there's a time for hating? Right? Isn't the Bible about love? Okay, first of all, there's a little nuance here, right? If you've ever loved someone truly, right, you wanted what's best for them, then you know that you hate it when they're going down a wrong path. Right? If you love God truly, then you start to hate your own sin. Love and hate are not exactly opposites if you view them in a nuanced way, but there's more to it than that. We have to understand what this poem is actually doing. This poem is describing, it's not prescribing. Okay, it's telling us about something. It's not giving us a prescription, right? It's description, not prescription. The preacher is not saying, thus says the Lord, it's kill o'clock, right? Kill someone o'clock, it's time to go kill. He's saying killing is a part of life in this world under the sun, just as healing is a part of life. He's not saying this is what the world should be like. He's saying that if you look around and accept the world as it is, you'll see that this is all a part of it. And there's good and there's bad. Or you could say there's positive and there's negatives. Or you could say that there are things that you want to happen and things you don't want to happen. You know, I share about this pretty often. I feel like it's just a thing I have to accept. But I was born and raised in Southern California, which I know is not a popular thing in Texas all the time. But I came here a while ago. But anyway, where I lived in Southern California, uh, along the Pacific Ocean, there was no, basically no such thing as bad weather. Okay, it didn't exist, right? Like in January, you go to the beach and it's 74. In July, you go to the beach and it's 75. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. And I, I actually checked the weather for this year just to make sure I wasn't lying accidentally. And I saw on January 26th in Torrance, where I grew up, it was 73. And then I saw on the 4th of July, it was 73. That's how it is in Southern California. But then I moved here. Right, I moved to Texas. The first day I moved in, the moving truck was outside of our apartment. It hailed. Okay. And it rained and it was like 40 degrees. I learned real quick that weather is a real thing. Now, of course, some of you are from the Midwest or the East Coast and you're like, Oh, you don't even know. Right? You know nothing about weather. I don't. I'm from Southern California. Right? I never shoveled snow a day in my life and I never will. But for me, moving to Texas, this was a lot for me. Okay. Just understand. All right. Show me some grace. And what I've learned, uh, especially in Texas, and this is what we can all appreciate as residents of Texas, is that you cannot predict the weather. There's one thing that you know about Texas weather is that you can't know it very well. You can't control it. Sometimes you get a heat wave in October. Sometimes it rains 20 inches in two days. Some days it's 80 in the morning, and then at night it's 20. There's a time for swimming and a time for snow. There's a time for turning the heater up, and there's a time for turning the AC up. There's a time for steaming hot cocoa and a time for ice cold lemonade. You get what I'm saying, right? You see what I'm saying? If you can kind of get what I'm getting at here, then you can get the analogy or the metaphor that the preacher is using in this poem. This is life. 
someone gets married and we laugh and we dance and that's the right thing to do. Someone passes away and we mourn and we weep. That's the right thing to do. We buy brand new shoes. We wear them every day. They're our favorite shoes, but as time goes on, our feet grow or they get dirty and we throw them away. Some of you had these letterman jackets or fancy dresses that were your prized possession, the most important thing in the world to you. Now they're at Goodwill. Who knows where they are? That's life. My grandma passed away. And a few months later, my daughter was born and we gave her my grandmother's name. And that's life, right? You, some, you pass away. There's a time for being born. There are times when we fall in love. There are times we fall out of love. Some of us know what it's like to hate someone that we used to love. Isn't that crazy? The preacher says, that's not crazy. He says, that's life. There's a time to hate. There's a time to love. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. And when you consider these 28 examples, when you meditate upon them, when you draw the line between the inspired word, the inspired page of scripture to the pages of our own lives, what we're supposed to realize by reading this poem, by, by sitting with this poem, is that we really don't have a lot of control over anything. In fact, we try to make things happen all the time. We, we try to make these decisions, we try to plan, and yet, at the end of the day, like the seasons, the seasons of life just pass us by. The things that make us laugh deep down in our bellies, we don't plan for them. The things that make us mourn and weep, the disasters, tragedies of life, we definitely don't plan for those. We don't get to decide if we're born in wartime or peacetime. And to paraphrase Jesus, which of us, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to our span of life? See, the poem is beautiful, for sure, right, with its ebb and its flow. I could see why people love it. But when you actually consider its subject matter, the unabated seasons of time, when you think about the duality of what is being presented here, all the negatives, it's truthfully downright oppressive. That's what this poem is with its comprehensive exhaustion. There is a time for good things, sure, but there's also a time, and we can't stop it, a time for the things that none of us want. There's a time for what we desire, a time for what we dread, and no matter how well we plan or how gifted we are or what wisdom we acquire, we can't change the seasons. That's what this poem is about. It's about accepting reality. And it's not an easy reality to accept. And yet, accept it or not, this is kind of the hard, harder thing. Accept it or not, time is a tyrant that doesn't wait for our permission. Time doesn't give us a time out. Okay, wait until you're ready, you know, to be a teenager or to be in middle age. Time just keeps going on at the relentless pace of 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how it is for all of us. I remember John Mayer had a song called Stop This Train. Do you remember the song? Uh, some of you, uh, some of you have no idea who John Mayer is. That's, you're blessed. Um, but John Mayer had a song called Stop This Train, and he was talking about life kind of as a train ride. And he had this funny line. He said he wants to stop this train. He's only good at being young. But the train doesn't stop. And this leads to the second truth. Time is a tyrant, but time is also a teacher. You can't escape time, but time has a lesson for us. I have a friend who, when we were younger, he used to always say things like, uh, I hate it when older people tell me you'll see. 
Those are the, the two words that he hated the most. You'll see. Because he felt like people were always raining on his parade. Right? So he got his first like real job, right? His first job in his career. And then he said people were telling him, oh, you'll see. Right? You're all excited now, but soon you're going to hate it. And you're just going to work this job for 40 years. And it's going to be exhausting. And he's like, man, why do they got to rain on my parade? He got married. Right? And he's all happy at his wedding. And people are like, oh, you'll see. Right? You're all happy now. But after, you know, a couple of kids and your wife gets old and wrinkly, you'll see that it's not like all that great. And he was like, come on, man. Like, why do people keep saying this to me? And I understood, right? I, I felt like just let the guy enjoy his vain life, please. But I knew my friend. And part of it wasn't just feeling like his parade was getting rained on. Okay, part of it was, and, and I, I share this in a positive way, hopefully, but part of it was, I think, just as young people, we felt like it didn't have to be that way. And my friend, knowing him, I mean, he's, he's a very super gifted guy. He's the kind of guy who is really good at long-term planning, so he was like, well, I'm going to do this and we're going to have special dates and we're never going to repeat the same thing. And, and the fire is just always going to be there in our marriage. And yet, despite these things, I'm not saying his marriage is all bad, but despite these things and the successes of his life, time happened to him. I mean, the truth is there's a time for parades and a time for rain. You know what I mean? And even though uh, these people were, I don't know their motivation in, in trying to talk to him about these things, even though they shared these things, uh, maybe out of kind of a, a negative Debbie Downer kind of way, they weren't wrong. My friend, I know, I, I know him. His first job didn't end up being what he thought. And now he's had kids and he loves his kids and he still loves his wife and they go on these special dates and all these things. But I know that the honeymoon is over because <laughs> that's just how it is. That's how life is. Honeymoons always end. That's how time works. So as N.D. Wilson wrote in his book, Death by Living, as a rule of thumb, when older people tell you something, believe them. Okay, It will save you the shock of discovering later on that they were right and also helps you dodge their smug gloating. Okay, So this guy obviously wrote it when he was young. But the truth is, okay, there is a wisdom that comes with time. Okay, There is a wisdom that comes with time. Look at verse 9. What does Solomon say? What gain has the worker from his toil? It's an interesting follow-up question to a poem. Something he's asked before, in fact, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, he said, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This was right after he said that everything was vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.3 asks the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1 again. What does it say? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Do you see the contrast there? Did you notice that? Before he was asking the question, uh, what is the gain under the sun? But in chapter 3, he sets, he sets us, he situates, uh, situates us in a different context, under a different paradigm. He says, under heaven. There's been a shift. See, Solomon has used the phrase under the sun to refer to this fallen world, right? We've talked about that, uh, where sin and death are ever-present realities at face value. Okay, looking at the world at face value, just see what there is to see. This is why I think the first couple of chapters are so depressing, quote-unquote, so hopeless sounding, so different than the rest of the Bible. Solomon is looking at the world merely as the world under the sun. But that being said, three times in this book, and only three, instead of under the sun, 
the preacher says under heaven. And it's a different thing. We've seen two of them already, in fact. This is the third and final one. In Ecclesiastes 1.13, he said, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then Ecclesiastes 2, verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This isn't just another way of saying under the sun. This is the preacher keeping in the back of his mind and ours that there is a world above the sun. There is a world, there is something beyond just what is underneath the sun. So this is what he's doing in Ecclesiastes. He wants us to see the world as it is while still remembering in the back of our minds and our hearts that this world is not all there is. See things as they are, but remember, there's more. The preacher is cracking the door open to let a little bit of heaven in here in chapter 3. An interesting thing about chapter 3 is he talks about God in this chapter twice as much as the first two chapters combined. So in Ecclesiastes 3.9, he's asking the question in a different way. Is there gain in our toil considering that God is out there? And the answer is different this time. He doesn't say it's all vanity. Look at verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Okay, so this is the poem. Okay, all the business that he's giving us, the, the business of gathering stones and, and uh, scattering them. He's calling all of the seasons of life the business God has given to occupy us. And then again, though we are ultimately powerless to change the seasons, he doesn't say what we might expect him to say. In the first two chapters, he would make these observations and he would say, and I found that all these things were vanity. They didn't matter. But here, look at what he says in verse 11. Even though there are these seasons that that reign over us, that rule over us, he says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful? That's not where we expected this to go. How can killing be beautiful? How can refraining from embracing be beautiful? It's funny, but it's not beautiful. You have to understand the Hebrew a little bit here to get what the preacher is getting at. The word for beautiful here doesn't mean aesthetically pleasing. He's not talking about like a gorgeous painting or something like that. Rather, what he's talking about are things that are appropriate. Okay, things that are fitting. Okay, so maybe you you have this intricate plan and everything goes according to plan and everything comes to fruition and you say, that worked beautifully. You're talking about things that fit just right. Things happen just so. Everything, all these things the preacher is saying, they go together just right. In other words, there is meaning to it all. Keep reading verse 11. He says, also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Eternity. It literally reads that he has put forever into our hearts. Olam in the Hebrew. There's this innate sense in us that we were made for more. There's something more to our lives. And you see this in humanity, not just in church. You see atheists, where all they talk about is God all the time. They're always trying to talk about how there's no meaning and you need to come up with meaning. And they're trying to use these words to convince you of their arguments, even though there's no meaning. It doesn't make logical sense. I mean, if they truly believe there's no metaphysical meaning, then stop talking to me all the time. 
Just do what you say you believe. Just survive if you're fit enough to survive and pass on your DNA and leave me alone with your books and your lectures and your moral high ground. And yet they persist talking about the meaning of life as much as anyone else, the Richard Dawkinses of the world. Why? Because eternity is in their hearts. It's crazy how that works. They need to talk about meaning. They feel compelled to talk about it. You have people going to concerts to experience something transcendent. If you've ever been to a huge concert, you know that it's almost like a worship kind of experience, right? Where you're caught up in something bigger, uh, along with all these people around you. There's greatness. There's singing. There's feeling. There's a moment. Why? Because eternity is in our hearts. When someone close to us dies early and unexpectedly, even though we know that everyone dies, we don't say, oh, well, that's just life moving on. No, we we mourn and we weep and we ask the question, why? And the reason why we ask why is because eternity is in our hearts. We are creatures who long for forever. And yet keep reading verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What is he saying here? He's putting our longing for eternity into the context of our subjection to time. God's given us a sense of forever, but we as mortal creatures don't have the ability to grasp onto it. The contours of eternity are etched into our hearts, and yet the seasons of time trap us in their cycle. And what is this supposed to teach us? Well, I was thinking about a few years ago, they did this TV segment on ESPN. I think it might have been Fox Sports or something like this. Uh, but they found people on Twitter, it's now X, but on Twitter, who were talking trash about professional athletes. Okay, so they were watching games, and they were saying, man, I could do better than that, or what's wrong with this person, you should fire him. And they found these people, they sought him out, and they said, why don't you come on live TV so you can try kicking a field goal? Okay, if you don't know what that is, it's, you know, those metal uprights at the end, in the end zone in football. You gotta kick a football through them. So they brought these regular average Joes who were, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking these professional athletes onto live TV and they had them humiliate themselves in front of the world. Uh, so these guys, right, they're trying to kick this ball, you know, 20 feet. They're like, wow, it looks a lot far, uh, further in real life. They're like falling on the ground, embarrassing themselves. The commentators are all talking about how terrible they are, talking bad about them. And it wasn't just the distance. It wasn't just the commentators talking bad about them. It was the pressure of being on live TV. And when their feet were in the shoes of the athletes, they just couldn't do it. And it led them to a appreciation for what these people were doing, that they were watching every week. And that's what time is supposed to teach us. Okay, now you're like, I don't like football. Just listen to what I'm saying, okay? What it's supposed to teach us is perspective are really humility. Time is the one thing that humbles every person. Every person ages. Every single person faces their mortality and their death. Humility is what we're supposed to get from time. Time is a tyrant. Time is a teacher. Time teaches us that we are not God. We have eternity in our hearts, but we are not from everlasting to everlasting. God is the one who has done everything from beginning to end. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He stands outside of time, totally free from the seasons and cycles of life under heaven. In fact, hear these words from the great Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge. He said, as God is free from all the limitations of space, 
so he is exalted above all the limitations of time. As he is not more in one place than in another, but is everywhere equally present, so he does not exist during one period of duration more than another. And then listen to this. With him, there is no distinction between the present, past, and future, but all things are equally and always present to him. With him, duration is an eternal now, end quote. Think about that. God's perception of time is completely different than ours. For us, we are trapped in the cycle. The past is behind us. The future is ahead of us. We live in the present moment. For God, everything is an eternal now. Everything is the present moment. He's not waiting for the future. He's not reminiscing over the past. Everything is happening in his purview right now. So from God's point of view, you got to understand that he is talking to Moses on the mountain right now. In his eternal now. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? He has seen his son being crucified on the cross right now from his point of view. And he is here with us right now in this moment. You can barely wrap your mind around it. We are creatures of time, but he isn't. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, Psalm 90 puts it. So skip down to verse 14. What are we supposed to do with this lesson The preacher says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God is the one who pulls the strings of the seasons. He makes everything appropriate, beautiful in its time. Everything he does endures forever. We cannot ultimately take away from his plans. And the reason for all of this, the tyranny of time, the struggle in our hearts, the longing for eternity, the reason for all of this isn't to make us hopeless, isn't to make us despair and think that all is vanity. It's not to make us hopeless. Rather, it's to make us ultimately humble. To make us realize how small we are so that we fear God who stands above it all. God gives us a sense of time to show us that we are a vapor. And this leads to the third and final point. And this is our application. Time is a temporary thing. Time is a temporary thing. Someone clever once said, time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. You guys get what I'm saying? Time really does fly though. And fruit flies do like bananas. Every parent I know looks at their kids and at one point says, stop growing, please. But they are powerless to do so. And it's because we ourselves are hevel. That's what the Bible says, James 4.14. What is your life? This is the New Testament. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And yet, we are obsessed with the seasons and cycles of time. There's a meaning to it, a purpose. There are times where it is appropriate for us to mourn and to weep. There are times where we can step into gladness and celebration. In fact, I was just looking up some time things online. The number one English word used on the internet a couple of years ago, I think, was the word time. Isn't that crazy? At least the number one noun. There might have been like a different verb or something like that. The most used English noun on the internet is time. We are obsessed with time. So what are we supposed to do? What do we do with this information? Okay, we know we're not God. God is God. But what do we do? 
Listen to verses 11 through 15 again. Listen to the flow of his thought. He says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Verse 12 and verse 14 begin with the same two words, I perceived. You see that? Perception is the key. We are trapped in the flow of time. God stands above time. What we need to do is we need to see things as they really are. Derek Kidner writes, the trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and of its subtle, intricate design. Instead of changelessness, there is something better, a dynamic, divine purpose with its beginning and end. Instead of frozen perfection, there is the kaleidoscope movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of one creator. What he's saying is God is doing something amazing with all of time. And it's our privilege to be able to partake in a little part of it. You and I, we're vapor. We're here today and we're gone today. That's how short we live. And yet God has allotted seasons of time for each of us. And seeing and accepting that life isn't in our control isn't just how it is. It's actually a beautiful thing. Because then we can live in the way the preacher himself learned to live. Which is, and here's the application, two things. He approached everything, every season of life, in two ways. One, be joyful. And two, do good. Be joyful and do good. Life is short. Life is temporary. It's a gift. And if we perceive it as such, our hearts don't have to be subject to the tyranny of time any longer. We don't have to rage against the bad seasons of life. No, we can accept that these are all from the hand of God. We can be joyful. And this is the big distinction. Instead of trying to find joyful things, trying to find happiness outside of ourselves, trying to find things that feel good, we can be joyful knowing that God knows and God sees and God has decreed everything from its beginning to its end. So, verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. To be joyful. This is something we need to cultivate. This is something we need to pursue. It's an awareness of what God is doing. This is how the apostles could be joyful in the face of persecution. Do you remember Acts 5? They are being persecuted. They are being beaten. But instead of getting down on themselves, wondering how could this happen to them? Instead, what does it say? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They could see how God's hand was in what they were going through. So real quick, can you see the good that God brings into every situation? Because it is there. Can you see how God is working in everything that you're facing? My friend in California, he lost his job. And he was just saying a little while later that it was actually a blessing in disguise because he was able to spend some time with his young sons before they were too old to want to spend time with him. When you have eyes to see, you start to perceive that everything is a blessing in disguise. Be joyful. Choose to be. And then second, do good. 
Even if you can't see the good in a situation, even if it's a struggle, you can still do good. You can still be obedient no matter what the circumstances or situations are. Under the sun, it might seem like nothing matters, but under heaven, understand everything matters. Even the greatest works disappear under the relentless erosion of time, and yet the smallest deeds are noticed by God. That's why the least will be the greatest in the kingdom. It doesn't matter what they do in front of men. It matters what they do in front of God. You know, I was thinking about the Dr. Paul Brand. Whenever you teach about leprosy from the Bible, Paul Brand's name comes up a lot because he was a doctor about a hundred years ago who invented a lot of the modern treatments for leprosy. So back then, leprosy was terrible. Now it can actually be treated. Okay, nowadays. But Paul Brand had a difficult life growing up. He, he grew up the son of missionaries in India. And the thing about um, being a missionary is he always had to kind of be subservient to that. Right? His parents' ministry, his parents' mission. When he was nine, they sent him out to boarding school in England. So he didn't even get to live with his parents for years. And then when he was 14, it had been five years since he had gone away, he got a telegram basically just saying in short letters that his dad had passed away. But the crazy thing is, and Paul Brand reflected on this later in life, uh, his dad had written him a letter when his dad was still alive, and he had sent it by boat, and it arrived after the telegram. Okay, so it was almost like he could hear from his father one more time, even from the grave, so to speak. And in the letter, Paul's father just described mundane things about, you know, being in India and what was going on in the house. He was talking about the hills in the backyard. But then he said these words. He said, God means us to delight in his world. It isn't necessary to know botany or zoology or biology in order to enjoy the manifold life of nature. Just observe and remember and compare and be always looking to God with thankfulness and worship for having placed you in such a delightful corner of the universe as the planet Earth. This is his father, the missionary. This is what he wrote. And that's really it. Be joyful in everything, even in the small things, even in the hills in your backyard. Do good, even if it costs you your life. This is the gift of God and the duty of man. Every season of life, every one of these 28 seasons can be approached in this way. Every time under heaven, from the worst of times to the best of times, you can be joyful and you can do good for this is what God has given you to do. And this is the beauty of Ecclesiastes. We're only in the beginning, but this is the beauty of this book. It's teaching us to let go of the things that truly do not matter. We're so stressed and worried and we're striving after all these things that we won't care about in 10 years or 100 years or eternity from now. Ecclesiastes is a book of deconstruction, not of our faith, but of how we chase after the things of this world. Let go of the things that don't matter at all and live for what does. There's just one problem. Time is a temporary thing. We are created for eternity. We were created for God. How is your relationship with God? If you look at verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God is the hidden hand behind everything that happens in time. Go back to verse 14. Why does, it, why does all of this matter? So that people fear before him. God is scary. God is scary. I say stop caring about these things. Focus on God. God is scary. So what do we do? 
What do we do with that? How do we live for what matters? How do we do good when we aren't good? In community groups, we try to memorize that verse. Hopefully some of us did it. No one does good. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Well, turn with me to John 2, and then we'll close. John chapter 2. New Testament. John 2 is the wedding in Cana. This is where Jesus did his first miracle. John chapter 2. Look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. Verse 2. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I said this is the first miracle he does. He actually does help. So when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's not talking about my hour to do miracles. He's just about to do the first supernatural thing he's going to do. So what does he mean by this? Well, look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, what did you notice? He never explains what the hour is. Why did he say that? He turns the water into wine. He helps them out. He keeps the party going, so to speak. Why does he even do this? What's up with this miracle? He says, my hour has not yet come. And then he turns water into wine. Well, if you look at the rest of John, And you keep this question in your mind. If you look at the rest of the Gospels, you see that Jesus talks about his hour a lot. And he's always talking about one specific point in time. The hour of his crucifixion. The hour of his death. The hour why he was born in the first place. And then you realize something else. The eternal one, the God from everlasting, the word who was with God and was God in the beginning, willingly submitted himself to the tyranny of time. He was living for a specific hour that he had to live toward. He was born and he grew, excuse me, and he learned. And though sinless and perfect, he submitted himself to the clock, so to speak. Not only did he grow tired in the night and rise early to pray, he was living for an hour where he would experience not only the worst pain that a human could experience, but the very wrath of God. An hour to die, that's what he was talking about. Everything in his life revolved around this one hour. Because in this hour, his blood would be spilled for the forgiveness and salvation of undeserving sinners. The eternal one would give his life for creatures of vapor. Here today and gone today. And he was thinking about this hour at this wedding. You had to put two and two together when it was time for everyone to dance and laugh. What was on his mind? What it would take to make times such as these possible for all eternity. When he will welcome us into a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. 
where every tear will be wiped from every eye and there will never again be a time to mourn or to weep or to war or to die ever again. When people are partying, Jesus is thinking about the eternal feast and the eternal price that he was going to pay for that. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The one who inhabits eternity invites those who are humble to dwell with him forever and ever. So kneel at the cross, humble yourself before the one who is high and lifted up so you can be joyful and do good all your days and then enter into the place where your Savior dwells. We'll close here. The clock is an attempt to control time. That's really what it is. And I was thinking about telling time and how we measure time. And it's interesting because all of our measurements of time really are imprecise. We talk about the earth spinning around on its axis or going around the sun. It's not exactly 24 hours. It's not exactly 365 days. That's why we have leap year. It's all a mess. We can't even tell time perfectly, much less control it. And so back to Carl, the thing about Alzheimer's is that it untethers you for time, from time. For the first time in your life, you don't know what time it is. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't remember what happened yesterday. And yet, in a different way, Carl is learning maybe more about time than most of us know. Because we pretend that we can control it. We pretend that we can plan for such and such a day and accomplish everything that we want, that if we're, you know, smart enough, on the ball enough, that we can keep ourselves from the seasons of life that we don't want. But the truth is, we don't have a grasp on time. We never did. Time has a grasp on us. But if you have the eyes to see, the perception of Ecclesiastes, you realize that it's not just time impersonally that has a grasp on us. He has a grasp on us. So you can eat and you can drink. You can take pleasure in your toil. You can enjoy the little things, going for a walk, playing a game. Enjoy those things. And you can see the business that God has given us. You can fear him and live a meaningful life. This is our lot under heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as we get into this book more and more to take in the lessons of Ecclesiastes. God, I pray that you would free us from the anxieties of caring about things that don't matter. I pray that you would free us from the dead end of living for things, God, that won't last unto eternity. God, and I pray that you would help us to live for what's important and to approach the things in life with joy and with gratitude. God, this is what you've given us. This is your gift. We look to you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.